The scripture for today is from Exodus chapter 6, verses 28 through chapter 7, verse 7. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask, would you speak to us now through your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week, uh, Charles Van Doren, aged 93, died. Now, probably most of you are going, who is Charles Van Doren? Like, that's not a name that you know. But there was a time in the past where Van Doren's name was incredibly well-known in America. Week after week, in the 1950s, he was on the game show 21 Questions, and he captivated the nation. Upwards of 50 million people tuned in to watch Van Doren week after week successfully compete on this game show. And he answered questions that were really challenging. So, for example, one of the questions that he was asked one of the weeks was, the Black Sea is connected to the Aegean Sea via two straits and a smaller sea. Name the two straits, the smaller sea, and the four countries that border the Black Sea. Which, of course, I'm sure for all of us immediately, all of those come to mind. Um, the Straits of Bosporus and the Dardanelles, the Sea of Marmara, Russia, Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria. And those were the kinds of questions that Van Doren was, asking, was, was answering. He'd sit there and he'd kind of, he was in a soundproof booth and had headphones on. He was competing against uh, another person. And he'd kind of sit there and, and kind of mop his brow and, and, and think and, and kind of struggle it out and then be able to answer it. And, and it was an amazing kind of accomplishment. And uh, Van Doren was particularly kind of captivating because here was somebody who was young and handsome and engaging, and he came from a very impressive family. So his father was a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and a professor at Columbia University. His mom was an accomplished novelist. His uncle was also a Pulitzer Prize winner. And Van Doren himself had done a master's in mathematics, then a doctorate in literature, he had studied at Cambridge and the Sorbonne and was actually himself on the faculty at Columbia University. So he was kind of this, this great figure, 
and became super well-known. Over the course of those 14 weeks, he won $129,000, which in today's money is over a million. This was for somebody who at the time was making less than $5,000 a year as a faculty member. He was put on the cover of Time magazine. He had 20,000 fan letters that he received, marriage proposals that after he was finished, when he finally lost, NBC, the, the station that was broadcasting the game show, gave him a three-year contract to appear on their other shows for 50000 a year on top of remaining on the faculty at Columbia University. Van Doren was one of the, the, the people, one of those names that was well-known at that time, which was part of the reason it was so striking and so disheartening that two years after his successful run on the game show, that he stood up before a congressional committee and admitted that he had been coached and given the answers on that game show, and, and that the whole thing had been a setup, and that he had persisted in, in kind of that, that lie, even to the point where he perjured himself in front of a grand jury when he and others were hauled in front of it in order to testify about what had happened. And when Van Doren left that congressional hearing room and the reporters mobbed him outside and they asked him, why did you do this? He said it was some combination of, of foolish and naive and prideful and avaricious which means greedy. I think there was this sense for Van Doren of coming from the kind of family that he did, having that burden of expectation, here was a way for him to make his name. Here was an opportunity that was given to him where he could make his name known, where he could be somebody that, that people would recognize, that people would respect. And that desire, the wrongly kind of lived out by Van Doren, that desire hits home uh, my hunches for so many of us, that we long for our name to be known, that we want to be people who are respected, that, that those who know us, our, our friends, our family, we want them to appreciate us, to be able to, to value who we are and what we can do. Like at work, my hunch is that, that almost every one of us in, in the jobs that we do, we want to be appreciated. We want our name to be known as somebody who, who brings value, who is a good colleague. We have this desire for our name to be known. And that desire, that longing, it goes back. It goes back all the way we can read in Genesis 11. When the people gather in order to build the Tower of Babel, here's what they say their motivation is. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. This longing that we have to make our name known, it goes so far back. And yet, it's what we long for but it's not actually what we're made for. We're not made in order to make our own name known. The Bible describes what it means to be human and it says you and I are in the image of God. 
which is to say that, that to be human is to represent, to show forth God. And there's a way in which there's an incredible dignity that goes with that. And there's also this sense that that means to be human is to be secondary, is to be derivative. It is to say that it's not about us making ourselves known, it's about whom we represent. It's about whom we show an image that it's actually about making God known. That to be human, that what we're made to do is to make God known, not to make our own names known. And in fact, sin, from one angle, can be understood precisely as our desire to establish ourselves without reference to God. That, that we want to kind of make ourselves those who have value and are treasured and accepted in and of ourselves without any reference to, to, to whom God is. And so in this passage today, that's the question is, is who gets known? And the striking thing for us to see is that in the context of the Exodus, in God's story, His mission to free His people, to, to deliver them from slavery, that's crucial, but it's not the only thing that's going on here. It's not the only thing that God is concerned about. Because if it were, well, God could very easily, decisively, immediately bring His people out of slavery. Like with one kind of act, He could compel Pharaoh to let them go and release them. But actually what happens is this far longer, more involved process. And this passage is the introduction to what are known as the, the ten plagues these series of kind of strikes against Pharaoh and against Egypt that God engineers that eventually culminate in the people being freed. But there's no reason to have 10 if the only goal is the, the freedom of the Israelites. So what else is at work? Look at verse 5, what God says. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. In a significant way, it's both about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and God making Himself known. It's about God's name being known. It's about God putting Himself out there and people recognizing and valuing and appreciating and treasuring and honoring God as God to see Him as the Lord. Even the language in this passage that's used to describe the plagues, verse 3, look at it there, it calls it signs and wonders. That God intends these to be signs of who He is, to point to His identity. Because the big question here is, who knows the Lord? Back a couple weeks ago in chapter 5, when Moses and uh, Aaron first encounter Pharaoh, they come to him and they say, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go so they may worship me. And in a very kind of sneering, condescending way, 
This is what Pharaoh says back in chapter 5. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. He says, I, I don't care. I don't know Yahweh. And so the Lord's mission is to make himself known. The book of Exodus is a missionary book. It is a book about proclaiming and knowing who God is, about making it known to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. And so as these plagues begin, they are are peppered throughout with these statements where God says, here's what's happening, here's what's going on. The purpose of doing this is so that, that they would know that I am the Lord. Let me just point out one for you. This is in chapter 9. It's in the midst of the hail. And Moses is, is being told by the Lord to announce that there will be a plague of hail. And this is what God says. He says, tell him that this hail will come, and this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now... I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. God is fully capable of doing that. He says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what God is up to, about making himself known And there should be a way right now, as we're contemplating this, that there should be some way in which we're kind of squirming a little bit, that this should probably make us uncomfortable, because the reality is this relativizes us. It makes us not the main players in the drama, but those who are accessories, those who are the secondary characters whose purpose is to draw attention to the primary character. There's a way in which this completely humbles our pride. Like, we want to be the center of the attention in the story, and what this tells us is that's not the way the story of reality actually works. There's a kind of, if I can put it this way, an anti-Ron Burgundy theology at work here. So Ron Burgundy, the character of Anchorman, who's known for saying, among other things, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. Well, the reality is, no, we're not a big deal, and we're not supposed to be a big deal. God is supposed to be the big deal. So as we think about the plagues, and these chapters that that come after our reading, how does God make himself known through these? Like, what is it that we learn about who God is in order to encounter him, in order to, to know his name? Five things to kind of one after another highlight here. The first is that in the plagues, God reveals that he is the true God that he alone, the Lord, Yahweh, is God. And he says it explicitly in chapter 12, in the midst of the final plague, he says, I will be known, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. And if we look at the 10 plagues, we can pinpoint that some of them in particular 
show God kind of going after the Egyptian gods and what they specialize in. So the Egyptians worshiped a whole host of gods and each one had his own or her own particular area. And some of the plagues in particular show God kind of pinpointing and going after what the Egyptians would have thought as, well, this is particularly what our gods do. So you can make an analogy. If I, um, I, I'm not very good in the kitchen, I have very few skills, there's very few things I make, there's even a smaller subset of things that I actually make in a passable way, but one of the things I can do that I enjoy is I love to make guacamole. So recipe kind of handed down to me, and so um, it would be like if you came over to my house and you brought with you guacamole that you had made. And there'd be almost a little bit of like, kind of like a throwing the gauntlet down of walking into my house and saying, hi, here, I brought guacamole and tortilla chips. And I'd be like, what are you doing? That's like my job. And that's kind of what Yahweh does here. So consider, for example, the Nile River was hugely important. 90% of Egypt's Egypt's population lived within a mile of the banks of the Nile. And when the Nile flooded each year and made the soil fertile, that was crucial for the life of Egypt. And so what's the first plague? The Nile is turned to blood, and the fish in it die, and it becomes not a source of life, but a source of death. Because Yahweh is showing that He is the true God over the Nile. Or the next plague, one of the gods, Heket, had the head of a frog, and Heket's job was actually to control the frog population in order to protect the crocodile, which was seen as this special animal for the Egyptians. And so, to to protect the crocodile, Heket, the goddess, controlled and kept under limits the frog population. So what does God do? He sends an uncontrollable frog plague like frogs that they can't do anything about that overwhelm them because God is showing that He's God. Or one of the final plagues is the plague of darkness. And one of the key gods for the Egyptians was the god Re, the sun god. And each day, Re kind of rode and drove his chariot through the sky, pulling the sun and giving, therefore, light and life. So what does God do? God sends darkness a darkness that is overwhelming that Ray, the sun god, cannot penetrate in order to raise the sun over Egypt. And so God is demonstrating that He is the true God. So I wonder, what what are the gods of our age, of our heart? And where is it that God would speak into our lives to show that He is the true God, that He alone is the Lord, as opposed to the gods of our heart, the gods of our age. Second, God shows through the plagues that He alone is the creator and sustainer of the earth. That He is the one who has made everything and holds it together so that it works. So that you look at the plagues and so much of them involve creation. And specifically, Moses is told at different points to raise his staff. And at one point he said, raise his staff over the waters, and that's where the frogs come from. Or he's told to raise his staff over the land, from which then the gnats rise up. 
Or he's told to raise his staff to the heavens, to the sky, from which the hail and the darkness comes. And so all the parts of creation, the the water, the land, and, and the sky, are all used in order to bring these plagues upon Egypt to show that God is the one who is the Lord of the land and of the water and of the sky. And the plagues in some way kind of undo creation. So the creation story is this kind of orderly story of God bringing order out of chaos. And what Pharaoh has done is kind of anti-creation because he has set himself up to oppose the Israelites, especially the Israelites growing more fruitful and multiplying and keeping God's commandments to, to grow as a people. And so you look at the creation is undone. The, the land is laid waste. The animals die. Even to the point where the very, one of the last plagues, the plague of darkness, well, think about the first day in Genesis 1 of creation is separating the light and the darkness. And so God's plague kind of puts those back together where the darkness overwhelms the light and undoes the creation to show that the Lord is the God of creation. So it even says in verse 29 of chapter 9, when he asks, when Pharaoh asks that, that Moses would stop the hail, Moses agrees and he says, it's so that you may know that the earth belongs to Yahweh. So God shows through the plagues that he is the true God who is the creator and sustainer of the earth. Third, he shows that he is just and righteous. Not just what he does, but who he is. Look at our passage there in verse 4. God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. These are acts of judgment. Because it's not like Pharaoh is some innocent figure. Pharaoh is the one who has evilly, cruelly enslaved the Israelites, resisted the call to free them, and in fact, at some points, has called for all of the Israelite baby boys to be murdered. That, that all of his people would be complicit and participate in the murder of these children. And so God intends the plagues to show that he is just and that he is righteous because he does not let evil go unchecked. That he doesn't let this kind of sin just last forever. So, for example, the Nile being turned to blood. It was the Nile River that the Egyptians were called to throw the Israelite babies into. And so the Nile is turned to blood as a judgment. Or when it comes to these boils that cover the skin of the Egyptians, Moses is told to go to the furnace and take soot out of it. And furnace probably refers to a a brick kiln. And what were the Israelites made to do as slaves? They were made to make bricks in these kilns. And so this soot that in some ways is a sign of Israel's oppression, Moses takes it, it becomes the source of Egypt's judgment. Because God shows that he is not going to let evil just go. Because if 
if Egypt were just able to enslave God's people, to commit this kind of sin, then it would look like, well, God either doesn't care or God is impotent and can't do anything about it. And so for God to come in judgment is actually to show that God is good, that God loves what is good and righteous and protects people. Now, sometimes God does that in, in the day, and sometimes it, it, it takes a long time because the Israelites have been enslaved, and it's this generation that's being delivered, but there were generations before that that weren't, that had to live by faith that God would eventually put things right. And so the plagues for us help us know God. God is a just God. And that though there is evil now and the injustice is done, that God will not let that go forever unchecked. And in bringing his judgment like this, God shows us something else. God shows us that he is also sovereign over human beings. That God is in control of what happens and he is sovereign over our lives. And perhaps the way that this is most pointed in our passage is this challenging verse 3. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's a hard verse for us. I think perhaps this is the statement that really hits us, that this is about Yahweh being known as God and not about us. This is not about what are our rights and our privileges and how do we maximize who we are and how we're known. The story is actually about how does God make himself known? How is it that God displays the fullness of his godness, of his character, of his actions, that God would be seen as God? And that's unsettling for us. It, 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 it feels uncomfortable because it means that we're not in charge, that we're not the actors who have center stage in the story. So the question, well, what can maximize God being known? And in some way, God answers here, Pharaoh's hardened heart, which is to say Pharaoh's stubbornness, his resistance, his unwillingness to let the Israelites go, that allows God to send plague after plague and thereby show more of who he is, to reveal in a fuller, bigger way his character and his greatness than he would have if it had just taken one plague. And well, we ask the question, well, wait a minute, how, how does that respect what Pharaoh wants? Like, doesn't Pharaoh have free will here? Isn't he allowed to be a responsible agent choosing what he wants? And the storyline of the Bible is consistently that there are two things that are side-by-side side true. And they're hard for us to get our head around, but, but they're for sure there. And here in this passage, we see it because we're told, on the one hand, we're told Pharaoh hardens his heart. Multiple times we're told that it's Pharaoh who kind of makes himself resistant, who, who refuses to yield to, to what God is doing. And at the same time, alongside it, we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, that God is the one who makes him resistant. 
And both of those are true, and neither of them cancel each other out. The Bible consistently says that God is absolutely sovereign, that, he, that I could give you verse after verse, passage after passage that says, the Lord does as he wills. Who can resist him? He is the king who is sovereign. And at the same time, we're told consistently that human beings, you and I, are morally responsible, that we have genuine agency to act, to decide, to choose. We may obey, we may resist, and we're responsible. And both of those are true. And that's what's happening here. It's not like there are any hints in the Bible that what Pharaoh really wants to do is submit to Yahweh, and he just keeps being prevented from it because God is frustrating his will. It's pretty clear Pharaoh is doing what he wants to do. He wants to resist. He wants to enslave the people. And so what's happening here is that Pharaoh is freely choosing to do the very same thing that God is freely choosing for him to do. And it shows us that our hearts and our lives and our history are in God's hands. That he is sovereign and rules. And there's ways in which it's challenging, but there's also ways in which it is super good. Because the alternative is that you and I live in a world where chaos or where chance is in charge, where there is no assurance that things will be put right, that justice will prevail, that, that good will happen, but instead we're told, no, God is sovereign. And it doesn't give us the answers in the moment, especially when there is suffering, but it means that, that we can sit on the mourner's bench with each other that we can be assured that God hasn't blinked and lost sight of us in the midst of hard things, that He is in control. And that is good news, because that helps us see the final way in which God makes Himself known through the plagues, that we see that God is the true God who is the creator and sustainer, who has a character of justice, who is sovereign, and that all of that comes together in the fact that God is the gracious Savior. Look back again at verse 5. We're told, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. It is good news for us that God is the true God because it's the only way that He is the God who can save us the only God who can come into your life, who can break the power of sin, who can free you from your enslavement to yourself of your own desire to make your own name known, the only God who can put you right is this God of the exodus, this God of the plagues, this God of justice, this God of sovereignty, this true God. And so God is known here in how he stretches his hand out against the Egyptians, and in doing that, frees his people. It is the acts of judgment that are at the same time the deliverance of God's people. 
And that is always the way that it works. When you see salvation in the Bible, it is salvation that is enacted through the judgment of evil. It is God enacting justice against that which is wrong, that which threatens to break apart creation. That's how God brings about His salvation. And that's the only way that we can know Him. The only way that God makes Himself known, the only way that we can encounter this God is because He's a saving God. And we see that in the Exodus. These acts of judgment against the Egyptians that seem so kind of anti-Egyptian, they don't just deliver the Israelites. Because we're told, we're told in, in chapter 12, as the Israelites go out, there's this little verse that refers to and says, many other people went up with the Israelites when they left Egypt. Other people. Other people who are not part of Israel nonetheless see through the plagues who God is and they are saved as a result. Some of the Egyptians themselves are saved because they recognize and hear who God is and they believe and are saved. And that's always the way that it is. As we come into this holy week, this week that is kind of special as it builds to and culminates in Good Friday and in Easter. I think this is a good week for us to say, how can I know God better? Like not in a kind of religiously cliched or trite way, but genuinely. What would it be like for, for over these next couple of days for me to be intentional about knowing God better? And one of the things I, I want to invite you to is that we're going to have prayer both in the morning and evening each day here in the sanctuary. And our prayers this year are going to particularly go through the plagues. Like each morning and each evening, we're going to read one of the plague stories, kind of building so that on Friday we get to, for the Good Friday service, we get to the, ex, we get to the Passover and we're going to read through the plagues and read through Jesus' last week. And what I'd love for you to do is, is what would it look like to take maybe some time this week? Maybe in the morning at 7 a.m. or that may not work every day. Maybe it's evening at 6.30. But what if you came and said, I just want to be here to pray and to hear God's word and to know God better. Like to encounter who God is through his word this week. And what I think we'll see it's this beautiful truth that the early Christians said just weeks after Jesus had been killed and was raised from the dead. Here's what they said. They said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They said, look, the governor Pilate and this kind of client king Herod, and in fact, all the people, they conspired against Jesus. When they put Jesus to death, they did what was wrong. They committed an evil. They conspired. They're responsible. And at the same time, in the very same breath, this is what they say. They did, God, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God was in charge. God was in charge of delivering his people out of Egypt, and God is in charge of the cross and of the resurrection. 
Because if they just happen as an accident and God isn't sovereign over them, then they actually don't deliver us. But if God intends for it to be the case, if Jesus the Son intends to go to the cross, then that means it can save you and me. And it can be the means by which we come to know this God, this God uh, of the plagues, this God of the exodus, this God of the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask, would you help us to know you? Would you help us to, to, to pay attention to how you have shown and revealed yourself to us? Would you draw our hearts to believe? We pray that this week, this holy week, would be a time where, where in a real way we would, we would know you better, where you would help us to see who you are. And I pray, humble my pride. I, I pray, help me to see that I'm a creature, that I'm not that big a deal. Oh God, my heart tells me I matter. Help me to see that I only matter as I am connected to you. So we pray, lead us deeper and further in to who you are in your ways and your love for us in Christ Jesus. We ask, amen.